So welcome to the latest episode of YASP's podcast, Reach In, Reach Out. I'm delighted today we've got a great collection of guests. Actually, for the first time, we've got Wendy Orchard, who's our Chief Executive Officer. So I'm delighted to have Wendy. And Wendy is really going to give us some background on how the sort of YASP processes and governance feeds into and, and actions feed into the work that we're going to talk about today. And I've also got Steve Platt and Stephen and Mark Sr. And Steve Platt is a friend for many, many years and colleague for many, many years at the University of Edinburgh. And he can introduce himself formally in a second. And we've got uh, Mark Sr., who's our third guest. And Mark is our a really good colleague and friend as well from Canada. Again, Steve and, and Mark have uh, really been involved in YAS for uh, many years and uh, have been played a really important role, as we'll see in particular in this Partnership for Life program. So welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you so nice much for having us. Thank you, Rory. So let me just begin with, Wendy, can I just maybe turn to you first? And so the podcast, as I said, is really focused in on the Partnerships for Life. And, and I'm going to just give maybe, Wendy, if you say a bit more about your background in a second. The, so we're going to focus in on the Partnerships for Life. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of Partnerships for Life. Really helpful, maybe just for the listeners, if you could tell us a bit about your background. I know you, we, we've obviously known each other for many years. Maybe a bit about your background, how you got involved in YASP, because actually I don't know that in terms of how long you've been involved and your current role. Okay, well, as you know, my name is Wendy, everyone who's listening. And I actually started with YASP around about 10 years ago. And I I came along really to help with the central administrative office while they were setting up a physical office in Norway, just with some administration for, I think it was supposed to be for, for six months, and I'm still here, and I'm now the executive director. And so it's been a, a wonderful and interesting last 10 years, and very different to my normal background. Um, I'm actually a lawyer by trade, and wasn't really in the mental health field particularly beforehand, but I have grown up with knowledge of the suicide prevention field. And my mother, in fact, uh, ran the International uh, Samaritans Befrienders Worldwide for many, many years. So I have been... Immersed. Immersed, yes, from a very young age. Well, um, that's helpful. That's helpful, Wendy. And I was curious, because I, in terms of you, I know the term we use is executive director, but I still like chief executive. With your, with your lawyer hat on, what's the difference? With my lawyer hat on, I'm not actually sure there is much of a difference. I just think yeah. it's a, a matter of terminology. Um, yeah. Just curious, I was just well, one or the other. Okay, well that 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 we that we aside then. So that was Wendy. Thanks for that. And so we'll do we'll finish with the introductions, and then we'll we'll get we'll go back to Wendy, who will give us a sort of overview of of how the YAS processes fit with partnership for life. So Steve, can you do you want to say a bit about your experience, background, and what? Got you interested in suicide and suicide prevention? Sure. Hello, everyone. I've been involved in suicide prevention. Well, suicide research first of all, since the late 1970s for about 45 years. I started in the field almost in relation to a job opportunity in a medical research council, which was quite prestigious then for a, somebody with a social science background as I've got, and uh, was appointed to the job and I remember when I started the first day the in a MRC unit in Edinburgh the director who was the Norman Kreitman wonderful uh, man and researcher on suicide prevention 
he said to me, uh, remind me, Steve, I, I can't really remember. What, what do you know about suicide? He'd, he'd already interviewed me and given me the job. And I said, well, you know, I, I think as I told you at the interview, I said, I've, I've read Emile Durkheim's Le Suicide. And he said, well, right. He said, well, you might. He said, maybe you should just go away for a few months and do a bit of reading uh, to learn a bit more about the field. And if you need any guidance, uh, I'll let you know. And I often, by the way, used to tell this story to l later on to people we'd recruited to when I became uh, head of a, of a research unit years later, not on suicide prevention, really in public health. And I would tell this story and I would, my, my punchline was, and if you think I'm going to give you three months to go away and do a bit of general reading for this <laughs> job, you've got another thing coming. I mean, it was, it was just an entirely different era. And I did, and I spent 12 years in the unit just researching exclusively on suicide and self-harm and doing my PhD research and, and many other studies and got into an interest there as, a, as somebody with a background in sociology and epidemiology, inequalities and suicide, as I'd now call it, originally on unemployment. And I was, I was reflecting the other day that in those days, it was all about the science. So if you did ask me then, are you a suicide, what are you? I'd say a suicide researcher, not a suicide prevention researcher, or because what was important was the quality of the science that mm -hmm. you were doing. And as for what was done with it, and the idea of translating research into practice and so on, it, it was, we paid very little attention to it, even though we had no choice when the research that, that I did with Norman on suicide and unemployment during the early 80s, a time of uh, an extreme right-wing government in the, in the UK yeah. under Margaret Thatcher, made it very difficult uh, not to be considering the, the implications of the work you were doing, we were doing. Mm -hmm. It was on, only later on in my career that the, I got really interested, and, and mainly post-retirement in the last 10 years, when I've the challenge of how you, how you do research, how you construct research, and how you translate research into policy and practice, uh, I got really hooked on this. And, I, and it's, I think it's a wonderful challenge, but it's something that I think nowadays junior researchers would be much more like, I think it's very important that junior researchers are actually faced with this much earlier on in their career and understand the, the kind of implications and, and learn to be able to translate their, their to knowledge to different audiences. So that's, so, and, and just as, as background, I, I was a vice president for YAS for, for several years. And since then I've, I've, I've been involved in various uh, kind of guises as a, as a, on a voluntary basis with YASP, doing work to further the, the mission of the organisation, basically. Well, indeed, and, and of course, as co-chair of the work we're talking about today. So we'll come back to that in a second, Steve. But just one couple, I think, I think we all as a field owe you and Norman and, and your contemporaries, both yours and Norman's contemporaries, for actually, I mean, that, that development, as you say, from suicide research to suicide prevention research, I think we do a serious debt of gratitude for laying the foundations for how you conduct high-quality research and what is a really difficult field to navigate in terms of conducting research because we don't because obviously as we all know on this call ultimately the people we really want to know most about are no longer with us and finding novel statistical and qualitative and other methods. Um, having it, having that rigor is so important because if we don't have the rigor in the science, no matter what you then try to move from that science into practice, if that's not grounded in high quality science, 
the chances of success are are slim, as we know. So huge thanks, Steve, and, and on my behalf, and I dare say Mark shares that view as well. So maybe Mark, moving over to you now for a second, can you tell us a bit tell us a bit about who you are and sort of your what got you interested in suicide research and prevention and your links with YASP? Sure. So uh, these days I'm a psychiatrist. I treat adults with complex mood and anxiety disorders at uh, one of Canada's largest teaching hospitals. But about 20 years ago, I was a medical student and actually almost to the day, they constructed a barrier at a bridge called the Blur Viaduct in Toronto, which had about 10 suicides every year, which at the time had made it one of the, the most frequented bridges for suicide in the world. And in medical school, I had been we had a determinants of health class, and I had to do a project at the coroner. And strangely, nobody was studying this. And they said, well, would you be interested in studying it? Actually, I had two project options. It was either that or a scent-free environment at our women's college hospital. So I'm I'm glad that I ended up picking the, the Blur Viaduct study. So we looked at what happened with the barrier. It actually took a few years because we had to accrue data, but it had quite an unusual result, which was that the barrier was 100% effective at preventing suicides, but there was a statistically significant rise in suicides at other bridges and, in, in, and a non-significant increase in buildings, the people who had jumped from buildings in Toronto, such that the number of deaths by that method was to the decimal identical before and after the barrier, which was an unusual finding, unusual enough actually that they put it on the cover of the BMJ. But it, it was a bit frustrating initially because I guess I ended up becoming the means restriction doesn't work guy for a few years, which it was frustrating because I was hoping to show that the barrier had been effective and was surprised a little bit about the results. And people had said, well, there was something wrong with what you know what you found. And I initially found that stressful because I didn't, you know, I didn't invent the data. This is just what they showed. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I ended up agreeing that um, that there was something wrong. And what we ended up doing is going back and looking at at media reporting around that time. And what we found, unfortunately, is that in the years around the construction of the barrier, there were about 80 articles every single year talking about how suicide is inevitable, you know, these sorts of things are a waste of money, and actually, in some cases, saying, well, here's another bridge that you could jump off of. And when I say that these days in front of audiences, people usually gasp, and they should gasp, mm -hmm. because it was an outrageous thing to to publish. But what we ended up, we ended up doing a another analysis, which essentially, I think, you know, with some limitations, ended up identifying that really it was a media effect. So what happened is, you know, there was a means restriction effect that decreased the physical access to suicide, but there was a media effect that increased the psychological access and the two were awash until actually about four or five years later when the media stopped talking about it. And, and in fact, then the barrier worked exactly as was anticipated. That was what we showed later. So as a result of that, you know, I, I've ended up actually devoting much of my time in the last decade to responsible media reporting and trying to understand how we can talk more safely about suicide, which has led me to to have grants mentored by Jane Perkis and Thomas Niederkrotenthaler, who of course then connected me with YASP, and and that's kind of the route that I've uh, I've taken in here, and of course more recently with uh, with Partnerships for Life. Fantastic! I love that succinct potted history. A, a lot of years covered there, and Steve did the same in a in a brief introduction. So I'm okay. No, so I didn't know the I didn't know the first bit of that story, Mark. I didn't know about the BMJ article stuff. So that's really interesting. Okay, so moving on then. So Wendy, can we go back to you for a sec then? So Steve's going to in in a couple of minutes time give us a sort of overview of what Partnership for Life is. and But Wendy, just to put it in the context of YASP, where does it fit within YASP and YASP's activities? 
So part of ISP's current and previous strategies is very much focused on global policy and national strategies as something that we try and encourage building towards as a strategic and coordinated approach for countries to take. It also falls very much within our collaborative work with the World Health Organization, who we're very much alongside and agreeing that this is an appropriate and and a a good way forward for countries. We're very aware that there are countries which have strategies in place, maybe are on their second or third, but there are also very many who are really at the beginning in terms of probably very few, if any, suicide prevention activities. So how can we help build towards a, a future strategy for the for the country, which is resourced and, and funded, but build it up in, in stepping stones. What can we learn from each other and what can we learn across regions um, as to what works in some areas and, and doesn't. So it's very much anchored in our in our current strategy and our previous strategy. And actually, it was when Steve was previously uh, vice president on the ISP board, and he very much was involved with the uh, special interest groups that the board and him in particular felt that actually we didn't even have a special interest group that was focused on that. So it was a unusual practice because usually special interest groups are set up by members and obviously all the board are members, but it was actually a, a board-led um, mm-hmm. establishment. Yeah, and it's been remarkably successful, as we'll hear, and obviously going from strength to strength, Steve, in terms of, I mean, really, I would say is one of our flagship activities at the minute. So Steve, do you want to then tell us a bit about your involvement in Partnerships for Life and what it involves in, in some a bit more detail? Right. Well, well I mean, the, the broad aim of, of Partnerships for Life is to set up an international collaboration of experts and supporting development, implementation, evaluation as well, very strongly, of, of a strategic approach to suicide prevention. And, and with the view that there should be more countries basically around the world which have these kinds of national national programs. The approach started actually with my colleague. All this started from a very innocent conversation. When I say all this, I mean Partnerships for Life, which was with my, my colleague Mosin Rajan from Iran. And he said, wouldn't it, you know, what can we do to get more people talking to each other more and more international collaboration? How can, how can YAS support that? And thinking about that, it led through various iterations, really, to this to this initiative. Uh, we had a, another. We we started with the idea that we would set up a kind of regional, a set of regional uh, networks, and it was originally called the Regional Network Suicide Prevention Program, until we realised that that didn't trip off the tongue very easily and was a very hard sell in terms of getting major donors to get interested. So it became, after much interesting discussion, Partnerships for Life, which I think is much better and snappier. It's a great title. So there is, yeah, I, I think, well, I'm, I, you know, I like the play that it's both in, in terms of what the purpose is, but also the kind of sustainability and longevity of it. That's what we want. That's the potential for it. And the original idea, was, which we've kept, was to set up uh, six regional networks, so mirroring the WHO regions, with one or more coordinators in charge of each one, who would then work together as a steering group, together with Wendy and with our international advisor, um, Van der Scott. Yeah, I think that's, that's all. And that's, the, that's the, the overall steering group who would kind of guide the programme as a whole. When was it established, Steve? Oh, it's 20... 20- uh, the end of 2021. We're in. We're we are sort of a year and a half um, into it, basically. And that first period has been spent, first of all, setting up the program, 
getting coordinators to come on board. And I remember well asking Mark, I asked Mark when uh, the previous coordinator had, had, um, had retired and I, and I was thinking, who, who could we ask? I thought to myself, everybody, the people I want to ask are so busy, but who do you ask to do things? You ask busy people, you know, busy people who are doing really good work. And I thought, and Mark, I could see he was both sort of intrigued and interested in it, but also thinking, really, should I say no? No, no, I can't say no. <laughs> well, luckily, he didn't, which was great. And and the, and the reaction from all the other people we approached, and there have been some changes for reasons that are sort of beyond anybody's ability to control things happen but whether it's the original people who asked or subsequently there's been an enormous amount of enthusiasm and a sense that they can see why this is important it, it, it is part of it's part of YAS's mission if you like to support this kind of work to support this kind of collaboration and underlying it a view that national strategies provide a way of putting together these uh, work which which is established which is evidence-informed, which is likely to be strategically well-focused and which is likely to be effective, in part because I, I think a lot of the time it's not that we lack ideas or even interventions that we know are, are likely to be successful, but we, we're not at scale. We need to do things at a scale to make a difference. And I think national programs have this possibility. So the first year and a half has really been spent around building up a relationship in each of the regions, the, the, the coordinator or the coordinating team, as it is in many uh, many regions, getting to know or or getting to know again the lead contacts in each of the countries in their region. So that's literally been establishing one to one. It was Vander's view: you can't do this by email. You have to establish. You have to get on the phone, or you have to meet people. And these days, you know. Zoom and, and all these other means make this so much easier. Yeah. Get on the phone, uh, talk to them, uh, find out, understand what's going on currently, which is often very hard to understand in suicide prevention. What are the challenges? What are the issues that people have to face and how we can help? And and that's that was the first part, really. That and that's been that's still ongoing in, in many countries. We are, so in, in Europe, when it, I work with Thomas Diedencrot at Tyler in, in Europe to offer some help there. We're dealing with 53 countries and we have between us spoken to half of them. And then the, the next stages we, we've started building on in Europe has been workshops, which are designed to bring very small groups of countries together, no more than eight, uh, usually the main contact with one other person for detailed discussions over three hours or so to learn, again, to further our understanding of what's going on, to talk about barriers and facilitators to making progress towards national programs, to raise issues about how we can learn more from each other, so the peer-to-peer -peer learning part, but also how can countries which are advanced in the sense of being second, third, fourth generation, having third, fourth, second, third or fourth generation strategies, how they can help countries that are at the start of the journey towards a national program. Okay. And that's but if you ask Mark, we'll probably tell you in the Americas it's taken a, a, his his role as coordinate, lead coordinator for the Americas. It's taken a slightly, you know, some of the groundworks there, but it's proceeding in a different kind of way. And there is that opportunity for each coordinator or coordinating team in each region to be able to tailor what's being done to the kind of the needs of the region. Well, that's really helpful, Steve. And my God, that's so much you seem to have achieved thus, thus far, and that's only 18 months. 
in terms of I mean, that early work is so crucial to the future success. So, Mark, then maybe moving to you again and with the sort of America's hat on. So can you maybe tell us about what how Partnership for Life has manifest, how it's worked, how it's operationalized and under your leadership in the Americas? Sure. So Steve correctly identified my feelings in that meeting, which were, oh my gosh, how do I have time for this? But we've got to do it. This was, I think, just June of last year, less than a year ago, 2022. Essentially, I said, sure, we've got to do this. And I got an email list that had been compiled of people across a number of the countries. The America is very big. It's more than a billion people, 35 countries with several dependent territories, and most of them speak Spanish. And I don't speak Spanish, despite my uh, misspelled Spanish last name. So I immediately got on Duolingo <laughs> And started. I'm I'm on level 52 now, and I can now in our workshops uh, at least say a few words enough that uh, that people feel that I'm making an effort. That's pretty um, impressive. Hold, hold on, stop you there. That's pretty impressive. That is dedication you. to the cause. Uh, estoy aprendiendo un poco de español, pero no hablo oh, muy bien. Oh, muy bien, oh, oh. muy bien, señor. <laughs> For those who don't speak, it means I speak, I'm learning a bit of Spanish, but I don't speak very well. So I did that. And actually, but more importantly, I ended up fortuitously, I had another project and I was able to uh, hire a research assistant, uh, Daniel Sanchez Morales, who is from Bogota in Colombia uh, and has been helping us liaise with Spanish speaking countries. And so actually just in those months, we've met, we've had individual meetings with representatives from more than 20 countries. Um, we have signed up more than 100 people to be active partners. And there's a caveat to that. When we, Some of our initial meetings, for example, with Guyana, which happened to be one of the first countries, they had expressed some concern that people from Canada or the US would sort of show up in the South and start telling people what to do, which is, of course, not what the purpose of the initiative is at all. And so we made an active effort to uh, preferentially recruit partners from Mexico and South. And so in fact, once we st we we're just now starting to get folks from Canada and the US on board and so that number will grow almost certainly to 2 or 300 um, active members and we've just held four workshops, two in English and two in Spanish, where different countries actually patterned on some workshops that Steve and Thomas have done in in Europe already, just to have countries exchange information about what's happening and and whether they have a national suicide prevention strategy if so what's worked what have been the barriers to it if they don't you know what's ongoing what other efforts are happening we have a regional leadership team which is well represented across the whole region we're just setting up now sub-regional teams in north central caribbean and and south america we're hoping to start webinars and uh, and we're creating a situational analysis which is i don't think anyone's ever done this but essentially to compile what are the suicide prevention activities across all the countries in the americas and we're hoping to put that out sometime later this year so uh, it's been busy yeah that is really incredibly busy and so in in terms of the situational analysis so in, t in terms of the activities is it so is, is it at national levels you're looking at or local levels or is it some mixture of the two I think a mixture. I mean, if if countries have a national level strategy, that's obviously the one that we're focusing in on. But but many don't, and it's. I mean, depends on the level of detail that you're interested in. But it's so different depending on on the different countries and where mm -hmm. they're at. And um, you know, stigma remains a huge problem, and political leadership, especially in the lower and middle income countries, and lack of resources, and so huge issues that both span the region, but also quite big di differences between countries. Yeah, and I'll just stick with you for a second, Mark. Obviously, you're a Canadian, and I understand that there's some some movement you're, you're telling me that about trying to get a suicide prevention strategy, because it may surprise a lot of people that despite the United States, your near neighbor, 
having a strategy. Canada has never had a suicide prevention strategy. Is that correct? We have never had one. So there are 15 countries in the Americas with national strategies, albeit some who have major implementation challenges. And in fact, there are four countries that the World Bank considers high-income countries. So the other three are the US, Chile, and Uruguay. All of them have national strategies. Frustratingly, Canada is uh, the only one of the four that does not. Mm. That We have a framework, which is essentially sort of a watered-down version of a strategy with no funding or metrics for implementation. Uh, Part of the reason for that is a legislative one, that healthcare is uh, controlled by the provinces. Mm -hmm. And so I think for a while, the the federal government here has said, well, we we have to download this to each province. And some provinces, for example, Quebec has a a regional strategy. But the good news is now we've moved towards an ethos of a whole-of-government approach that doesn't only have to focus on healthcare. So that excuse is is going by the wayside, I think. And so I think we're hoping that as the Partnerships for Life advances, that we can leverage the international group and YASP to try to pressure our government to say, hey, come on, let's uh, let's do more here. Yeah. And, and so are you hopeful, though, that'll happen, that, that, that the political pressure will be translated into actually delivering a, a strategy, a national strategy? Well, here's my thought is, you know, countries, you know, politicians don't want to look bad. And so I I wonder about an idea of a little bit of mild peer pressure. And so the thought is, I know, you know, one of the things we're working on, I think, behind the scenes is a little bit of, you know, positions in terms of YASP, in terms of what we want countries to do with respect to national strategies, which you may hear about more later this year. And along with that, and an effort to pull together all the Canadian experts to push for this and potentially to have a letter, maybe from everybody in the, the region and potentially, Rory, if you want to sign that one, I wonder, whether if we put that out to the major news networks here that it might get some attention. No, I'd certainly delighted to sign such a letter. So well, good luck with that, Mark. And obviously anything you ask we can do to support that, obviously just let us know. Steve, just going back to yourself though, in terms of your hopes and aspirations, this is your metaphorical baby. And so what like what's your aspiration for the, the next five years? What do you hope to have achieved in the next five years from Partnerships for Life? It, I think one one minimum expectation we would have, and it it doesn't sound like a big one, but I think it it presents quite a few challenges, is to have established contact with suicide prevention, the, the work that I'd say the suicide prevention workforce, however small or large, with every country in the world, which would involve in some countries actually helping those countries probably to get something started. So because um, mostly we talk about. How, how we manage this process from, from, from countries which start off with maybe one small activity, possibly usually by an NGO, which, as we've already said, might be uh, around uh, crisis intervention helpline, typically. How to go from that to a fully-fledged program. But then there are countries that we know where YASP doesn't, for instance, doesn't have any contacts. And we've made huge efforts, and certainly through Wendy and colleagues in the Central Administrative Office, to try and find people so where we can make at least a start. But in some countries, that's proving to be uh, Mm. impossible or very difficult. So one minimum is make suicide prevention a a public health issue in as many countries of the world as possible. So it's kind of recognized as an issue. We know that some of that work it has to be quite high-level work because we've known for a long time, ever since the famous guidelines that the UN published in, what, 1996, that high-level political support and recognition uh, is absolutely crucial yeah. for, for getting any chance of a national program going. 
So some of that work that would be involved would be would be with w, working with WHO and YASP working with other international organisations, trying to find a way to get into to be heard by health ministries, usually by health ministries in in some countries where we've got mm-hmm. no presence. So that's a kind of minimum. Beyond that, that we would start to see countries which have got disparate programs of work, but are at least have, have made some have small steps that we've helped them to move towards national the development of national programs. And the third thing, which is a particularly be in my bonnet, is that we have got much better at evaluating national programs and what they're doing. And I I take quite an extreme position on this, possibly, which is that I'm, I feel it's all, it's borders on the unethical to be, if you like, making an experiment. I don't want that to be misunderstood, but but experimenting on something like setting up a, a national a national strategy and all the work that goes into implementing it without really understanding what it is that's been done or attempting to measure progress or to understand if it's made a difference and how. Because, you know, one of the things one one learns through work on, on public health, particularly on evaluation, is the dangers of assuming that whatever one does, as long as it's got the right intentions, it's going to have a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And I always start, you know, I, I start from being sceptical sometimes about what we're doing and making sure that we've got some grounds for actually promoting this, whatever the intervention happens to be. So that, that to make evaluation, to make people... Uh, research and evaluate research conscious in the sense of that they are implementing programs which are which are based on the best possible science as far as we know it and mm-hmm. to support further work in that area of understanding different interventions and their success and that then there are uh, that they're evaluated and that we understand what's in the black box so you know again just just to finish on this that the the quality of research that's done at the that's been done a lot of it that's been done is that there are not only certain methodological limitations around it but you come out of it knowing absolutely nothing about if there's been some claim of success what on earth is it that's been successful and i like to my my, my image is of a you know some some very clever being coming from some other planet somewhere and coming to scotland say which i know a little about and saying, wow, I hear you reduce suicide by 20% under Choose Life program, which which we did. Well, it, it happened during the Choose Life program. So tell me, you know, which which bits of this, what did you do? Well, we did lots of things. We did hundreds of different things. Okay, well, you're telling me that they were all contributed. And I'll say, well, that's unlikely. So you said, look, we, we don't have the resources on our planet to be able to do something of that scale. What are the crucial elements that are likely, you know, assuming that's, similarity in context, which is a bit far-fetched when it's a planet sort of in the outer solar system, but it's possible. What are the key elements that we should do that is likely to make a difference? And I'd have to say, I have no idea. Yeah, not, we, no. we did lots of things and the, and the rate went down. I don't know whether we are lots of things contributed to this rate going down and and if they did i don't know which bits of all these bits i know it's it's a million dollar question and suicide prevention mark you're looking to try and come in there well i was just going to say i i you know i I very much agree with the idea of the ethics of that i mean this maybe we need its own podcast on this but you know i do school-based research based on my work in messaging and try to figure out whether it works and so often people are implementing programs especially with young people sometimes as part of national strategies that that they're just not evaluating to your point steve because they think it's it's a good idea. Actually, my bias is I think a lot of the time it's either neutral or maybe even sometimes harmful. So um, I'm glad we're researching it. Yeah, no, I, 
And actually, funny, I was at an event here in, in Glasgow earlier this week, and at, in the audience, somebody asked a brilliant question. And it was, it was around this idea that uh, in a lot of countries, certainly in, in, in the UK and in Canada and the United States, we do investment in areas where there's more deprivation. And, and they try out all these things. And the question this person said, she had, has retired. And she said, so she feels able to ask the question now. And she goes, actually, have we any evidence that these so-called brilliant ideas, when we go into, like, try and fix these areas, what's the evidence that they work? And says, she, and her point is, I bet you if we just gave people the money that's spent on these programs and that sort of idea of universal minimum wage or so on, that would be much more effective was her question, well, as a, I suppose partly a statement, and I suppose it changed perfectly well work we know going on, for example, in Brazil with the conditional cash transfer work, which we know that has been markedly, hugely effective. So I think so. I think the point really well, really made, well made there, Steve. Mark, stay sticking with you though. A couple of questions before we'll sort of bring it to a close. Um, is so. What are your hopes? In terms of for specifically for the Americas, I know that where, where your remit is. Same I, I next to, five years. I have to say, I'm I'm very hopeful. One of the interesting things meeting so many people from diverse backgrounds, different kinds of stakeholders and jobs, is that there is a universal agreement of the need to do something about this and a will to do something, but a lack of support and lack of resources and lack of coordination. And I really think that, I mean, obviously there may be limits to what we can do in terms of broader changes to, to everyone's society, but we can bring together everybody from all of these countries and create networks where we can, you know, teach people the, the best evidence-informed suicide prevention strategies, uh, create pressure on, on governments to do a better job, coordinate programs and things like that. So my, I really think that we can, you know, we could increase the number of countries in the Americas with national strategies. I think we can improve those strategies. We can improve the activities and also the surveillance and data collection. That was one of the major things that's come out of meetings is, you know, how do we get better data? And once we have it, what do we do with that data? And we can absolutely help manage that. I think we're going to be able to advance, you know, incrementally the the whole region. And so my thought is just how far can we get with it? And then and then we'll do another five-year plan and see if we can do much better. Yeah, no, not I love that aspiration. Very tangible, tangible sort of outcomes as well. Okay, two last questions for each of you, and then I've got one sort of last, last question. But the two substantive questions are, and I'll go back to Steve for this one. So Steve, in terms of what you've learned so far, so are there any nuggets or some valuable experience you think, actually, that's worth disseminating more widely to people? So what's the key nuggets of success or positivity or, or some experience which, which you think, actually, that's working really well? So in terms of the, are there sort of partnerships for life, that program of work, was there some, is there something you think, actually, the reason it seems to be successful is X? I think, well, what I've been struck by is particularly in countries which are at a less developed stage on the journey, the sense that they're being listened to, heard, that their uh, experiences are important and that they, and that we, we want to understand what they're doing and how they can contribute to the, to to this wider effort. So that that sense of, for many of them, to the you know, in a country where there may be literally a handful of people working in this area who are very cut off from the international world, who don't have much kudos or or, or, or great reputation within the country, to be actually in a group with others and treated as equal 
and their contributions to be heard and so on. I think that's really powerful and it, and it brings them in and it, it really furthers this idea of that, that we can provide this kind of peer-to-peer peer support, which, which is one of the key ideas underlying mm-hmm. the programme. Great. And same question to you, Mark. Sort of what, what active ingredients of success? I would agree entirely with Steve and maybe just build on that to say that, you know, one of the the interesting dynamics of lower resource countries is that often they have to try to achieve the same thing with less. And as a result, they're frequently doing really innovative work. I'm thinking, for example, in the Americas of Costa Rica, who really, you know, punch above their weight. And and I think, frankly, in Canada and maybe the US, we could learn things from from how they do things in Costa Rica. So I think the whole idea is really just to get together everybody on the same footing and try to see what we can all learn from each other. Yeah, great, great. Um, Steve, last question to you. And then these this last, last question as I describe it. If somebody wants to get involved in Partnerships for Life, how do they get involved? The easiest way is I'm, I'd welcome people getting in touch with me directly. I've, I've, I've had people do that already. And then I'll try and give them the best advice I can and pass them on to you know, in whatever ways, either helping them myself or, as is often the case, if they're from when they're from a particular area, is direction towards the team that's that's coordinating that region. And and really, people welcome offers of help. We all do. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Um. And in terms of before I finish or we finish, is there anything about partnerships for life that you haven't had a chance to talk about or say any key message that you want to say? Don't have to. Uh, um, just check in. No, no, that's a no, no. That's a no, no. It's a no, no. It's a no, no. Okay. Well, after that, no, no. Then, just the last one. We try and end the podcast in something which is just slightly sort of different from the sort of the nitty gritty of the podcast. So I'll ask Mark this question first, and I'll ask you the same question, Steve. Is this is reflecting on what you've learned over your course of your life and career so far? What advice would you give your 16-year-old self? I think we need a whole podcast for that, but the, <laughs> the, the the short answer, I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a motherhood statement, but I probably just, I tell myself to be less self-conscious. I mean, I think especially at that age, I still have this a bit. I sometimes wonder why anyone would care what I think. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be helpful. And along those lines, actually, to think big. And uh, you know, if we tie it into what we've been talking about here, I could have spent the last year working on a much smaller project, putting in the exact same effort and probably achieved the same relative amount, but in a much smaller space. So if you're going to do things, you may as well think big and see what you can change. Yeah, really brilliant advice. Steve, same for you. What advice would you give your 16-year-old self? I think I'd be saying to my 16-year-old self, I would advise you to seriously rethink this idea of yours of going into your father's business to manufacture clothing. Ah. I'm not sure that's what you're... I'm not sure that's what you're really, you know, is the purpose of your life. I think I think you need to think think in other ways. And so and so hold on. So how long did you think about that for? What was that, sorry? How long did you did you did you think about that seriously then? Oh, I my my whole life I was gonna go in and join my father and take over my father's clothing manufacturing business in Salford, which is which was then quite a center. This is through the 60s. So that was quite a center for clothing uh, manufacturing, which is what my father was. Yes, I actually joined the business and within a few months realized that this was this was not my destiny. Ah. <laughs> but that's a long, long story, which I'm not going to tell now. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, that was a, well, I must hear that story the next time I see you in person, Steve. Okay, <laughs> thanks a million, Mark, Steve and Wendy. And really huge 
thanks on Yasp's, Yasp's behalf on the work that you and your colleagues across the globe are doing. It really is so exciting, so important. And I suppose it's Mark, your point of mentioned that in your last comment, so impactful. So huge thanks. And if anybody wants to know more directly about Partnerships for Life, contact Steve Platt directly or contact, there's contact details on, or YASP more generally on the YASP website. I hope you find that helpful and have a great afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye.